I have to begin today just by saying thank you. In light of Sonia's passing this week, which we learned about last Sunday after service, I have watched members of this community show up for each other in beautiful, beautiful ways, and I see her sister nodding. So thank you all. And if you would like to show up for the visitation on Monday night, I know Reverend Ken will be there, and Tuesday morning at the service, both of us will be present. If you're not able to make it then, you can always give Sue and Rebecca a hug today. They'll accept hugs. Huh? Do that anyway. (laughs) Hugs always. So between the song you just heard, right, Bono, you two, between the third song the band did today, that new Steve Winwood song, Roll With It, which I don't think I'd heard since 1995, (laughs) and I suddenly remembered how much I loved it. And between last Sunday's movie, when I preached about Sister Act, and this Sunday's movie, when I'm preaching about Clueless, I am very pleased that we have somehow turned this into 90s commemorative week (laughs) at Wellsprings. Reverend Ken is guest preaching at a colleague's church this morning, which is a commitment he made a long time ago. So he will be back, even though his heart is with us this morning. And I'm sure when he comes back next week, he'll probably preach on some movie that actually came out this year. So enjoy 90s week while you can. There was this weird trend in the 90s that I couldn't figure out where it came from. I Googled around. I tried to do some research. I have no idea how it started. But I don't know if you noticed this. In the 90s, a lot of movies were made retelling classic literature as teen rom-coms. It happened a lot, right? There were some that were very explicit. There was the Romeo and Juliet remake that Baz Luhrmann did with Leo DiCaprio and Claire Danes. I love that movie. I had the soundtrack. (laughs) And then there were some that you may not even realize were remakes of classic works. Taming of the Shrew. Anyone know this one, what that became? Ten Things I Hate About You. That is the most 90s picture I've ever seen, by the way. (laughs) Everything about that. The chunky, black wedge flip-flops. George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion, which had been made into My Fair Lady, right, in the 50s and 60s, was remade once again into this film. She's All That. Ah, the next one. Yeah. This, by the way, is her before makeover picture, and I, I don't know what's wrong with it. Come on. She looks good to me. And then the movie that we are talking about today was originally built off of the book Emma by Jane Austen, which you may not have realized. Clueless. It looks a little different, updated for the 90s. Those big flip cell phones. And if you've never read Emma, or even if you have, you might have missed the literary references in this movie because on its surface, Clueless seems like it's a movie about a spoiled teenage California Valley girl that's very vapid, right? She gets into arguments throughout the whole film with her friends and with her boyfriends and potential boyfriends and ex-boyfriends. 
And then she ends up with Paul Rudd at the end of the movie, which, for the record, is never a bad way to end a movie, I don't think. But Clueless, just like the book it's based on, Emma, is actually a movie about pride. It's a movie about the journey from assuming that we know to realizing how much we don't know. The journey from assuming that we know what's going on, that we know what other people need, that we know what's best for the people we love. All well-intentioned things. But it's about that journey from assuming we know to realizing how much we really don't and how we live in that place. Now Cher, played by Alicia Silverstone, the main character in this film, is pretty good, actually, at figuring out what's going on, right? And she does her best. She really tries to manipulate her world in this very well-intentioned way to make things work out for her and the people she cares about. And she, she has a good heart, right? She goes for the win-win. One of the earliest things we see in the movie is that when she starts getting bad grades in two of her classes, she realizes, you know, both of these teachers in these classes are single. And I bet they might relax a little bit if they got together. And she starts feeding one of them. You know, I heard Mrs. So-and-so say this about you, and I heard Mr. So-and-so say this about you, and it works out. Everything is a win-win. They get together, they actually get married at the end of the movie, and she gets a passing grade. (laughs) Nice one, Cher. Good. It works a little less well with the other main plot of the movie, which is Ty, played by Brittany Murphy, who's unfortunately no longer with us anymore. Ty moves to the West Coast from the East Coast from, I'm not sure it's even said in the movie, it seems like Brooklyn or the Bronx, somewhere in New York. And she's very different than the rest of these girls. And Cher picks her out immediately and gives her the full Valley Girl makeover to help her fit in. But Ty has this pesky habit of continually showing everyone who she actually is, which makes that plan of Cher's start to unravel. Cher takes on a lot of people and relationships in her lives as projects. But when she does that, she doesn't actually get their consent first. She doesn't actually ask them in the fullness of their selves to contribute to the relationship. She wants to pull all the strings, again, often with the best of intentions. But that's not a mutual relationship. And because of that, it is doomed to fall apart eventually. And unfortunately, as Cher scrambles, watching her schemes begin to unravel and crash down around her, she begins to realize that people and relationships are not projects, that she can't control the outcome of what happens around her, right? Like this commercial... She sees that's not how this works, right? Your best intentions aside, that's not how any of this works. No matter how much we might love the people in our lives, 
We cannot control the outcome of their lives. As her schemes start to break apart, she starts to break apart a little bit because she's never really learned how to relax in a state of not being in control. She's never really learned how to let somebody else take the wheel. Who knows why? But she's not well-practiced at it. She's never really learned how to be vulnerable or to be in someone else's hands, which is so scary but also so real. It's a position that we all have been in in our lives at one point. We were all once little babies held in someone else's hands. And we all will be again someday, one way or another. Not knowing, admitting that we don't know what's best or what to do or how to do it. We do not like that feeling. We can resist it and fight it and twist and turn our whole world around before really bone-deep accepting that fact. Back in 2010, three years before his death, there was an oncologist named Dr. Albert Lim Cook Hoy. He wrote an article, an op-ed in the New York Times, about what it was like to be an oncologist, to be a doctor who treats patients who are battling cancer. He reflects all the way back to his med school days when he was training for this career, and he says, I remember all throughout med school, you know, those late nights, those awful tests sometimes, getting back bad grades, feeling like the finish line was going to be that graduation day. And one of the things he so hoped for in that graduation day was taking the Hippocratic Oath, the code of ethics, the oath that would connect him to centuries and centuries of people who had followed the same calling before him. And he said, I was pretty disappointed when I found out the vast majority of medical schools don't actually have you take the Hippocratic Oath at graduation. Most medical schools now have adopted a newer oath, a revised oath, because it turns out the original oath doesn't really make sense anymore. It says things like, I will not use a knife. Well, (laughs) back in the day, that made sense, maybe, right? Uh, It has you swear allegiance to a whole bunch of different pagan gods for different things. That doesn't really jive for a lot of people. But there's an updated, a modern version of the traditional oath that was written in 1964 by a man named Dr. Louis Lasagna. Yeah. He was the dean of Tufts Medical School at the time. And one part of this modern oath actually wasn't found in that original. It was added in. It says, I will not be ashamed to say, I know not, nor will I fail to call in my colleagues when the skills of another are needed for a patient's recovery. Dr. Hoy says, I know not is a very honest acknowledgement of the limits of our knowledge. And he says, it is a wise and honest doctor who peppers their speech with this phrase. But of course, as he points out, the cancer patient who looks into the doctor's eyes and asks, how long will I live? 
When that patient hears, I know not, from the doctor, they're not exactly congratulating them on their wisdom and their honesty. To admit we don't know is hard. It can disappoint people. It doesn't mean, wise and honest though it might be, that we won't encounter some resistance or discomfort in that process. Dr. Hoy says, in oncology, I know not is often the truest answer to the question, how long will I live? But I know not is not a satisfactory answer. And yet, giving an answer like six months is neither accurate, comforting, or tactful. Tomes, he says, have been written about this problem in medicine, in the healing professions. He says, the art of speaking to patients about bad news, it's an art. It's not perfect. And he says, the most we can often hope for is to soften the blow. The stakes of knowing are high which is why we have so much inner turmoil sometimes about what we know and what we don't know and the gap in between. We think if we know, we can save. Because sometimes we can. Knowing is powerful. It's just not all powerful. The oath that doctors take reminds us against the dangers of that extreme, of believing that if we have the knowledge and the answers, that that will be healing all on its own. When in fact, pretending perfect knowledge, when the vast majority of our times we don't have perfect knowledge, pretending it can be very harmful. And holding ourselves up to that impossible standard of believing we should have perfect knowledge can certainly be harmful to ourselves. As Dr. Hoy says, in this life, sometimes the most we can hope for is to soften the blow. What we can find valuable instead of that perfect knowledge that we're all tempted by, that Cher in the movie operates like she has, but that none of us will ever have access to. What's valuable instead of that illusory perfect knowledge is a mix, I think, of knowledge and humility, and tying the two together, most importantly, love. Recently, a member of our congregation shared with me a story that she'd read. It was a story about two women who had been very old friends. They grew up together. They were at each other's weddings. And life took its course and brought them to live eventually on opposite sides of the country, far away from each other. But they kept in touch. They stayed close over the Internet and phone calls. And over time, they both became mothers. One woman had two young children at home, and one woman had a a relatively new baby, almost two, a 21-month-old daughter. And then suddenly... 
the mama with the little girl, the 21-month-old, lost her child unexpectedly and suddenly. And after a few weeks had passed, the mama on the other coast of the two healthy kids, she said, almost against my will, because I knew it was the right thing to do, I was clicking and making those reservations, and I planned this trip out to see my friend. I knew that I wanted to be with her, but she said, I was a nervous wreck. What could I do? How could I possibly find the words, any words to say to her or her husband? She said, everything I have to talk about in my life, everything I'd been consumed with up until that point was about my kids, my two living, breathing kids. And she said, I don't think I should talk about any of that. I don't know what to say. She said, I truly couldn't relate to her pain. And so she said, again, even though I knew it wasn't the thing that people tell you to do, I armed myself with a pocket full of Bible verses and a pile of rehearsed things that I was going to say just so I could walk in that door. And she said, I never in a million years could have foreseen the powerful words that would be spoken between us during that time we spent together, but they didn't come from me. They came from my friend. As she sat with her friend and did nothing but listen, listen to her friend describe the events leading up to the death of her daughter, listen to what it was like to hold her sweet child in the hospital during the last minutes of her life. Her friend ran out of words to describe how she felt. She cried, and all she could say was, it was like my worst nightmare, acknowledging that those words were so inadequate to express how she felt. And then she said her friend looked at her right in the eye with big tears streaming down her face. And her gaze softened as she looked at me. And she said, you're a mom. You know. You're a mom. You know. The author said that it had never occurred to her that while she had never experienced the pain of losing a child, she had known the joy. She knew the joy of family, of holding that tiny person and wondering what their life would be. She knew the joy of knowing her child and loving her child. She said, I can't imagine that being taken away, and neither could my friend. It's just happening to her. And suddenly the gulf between them did not seem so far apart. We can share the same space, she said, because we both know the love that is the inverse of our grief. The love that we both know holds that same space for the depth of our grief. It's sort of like the reflection of a mountain in the water. Like this. 
Buddhist nun Pima Chodron says, spiritual awakening is frequently described only as a journey to the top of the mountain. We must leave our attachments and our worldliness behind and slowly make our way to the top. That's the goal. At the peak, we transcend all pain. The only problem with this metaphor, she says, is that we leave all the others behind. Our drunken brother, our schizophrenic sister, our tormented animals and friends. Their suffering continues unrelieved by our personal escape. She says, in the process of discovering bodhicitta, which is the Sanskrit word that means noble or awakened heart, the journey goes down, not up. It's as if the mountain pointed toward the center of the earth instead of reaching into the sky. Instead of transcending the suffering of all creatures, we move toward the turbulence and the doubt. We move toward it however we can. We explore reality and the unpredictability of insecurity and pain, and we try not to push it away. If it takes years, if it takes lifetimes, we let it be as it is. Each, she says, at our own pace without speed or aggression. We move down and down and down, and with us move millions of others, our companions, in awakening from fear. And at the bottom, she says we discover water, the healing water of the awakened heart. Right down there in the thick of things, We discover the love that will not die. There is so much we don't know. There's so much we can't make turn out the way we want it to be. There always will be. So what do we know? What do we know? And who else in this world knows what we know? Who else in this world can we connect to with love? Not taking all of their pain on our shoulders, but mutually practicing that vulnerability. That vulnerability that is true, that is real. And finding that deep down there at the bottom of that mountain can actually be joy and connection and a radical sense of not being in control but being held by another. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Presence in our lives, mystery that set our hearts beating one day. One day back in time, it started each of these clocks that we live. We'll never know why, 
and we never know how long those clocks are set for. We know that they have been set. We know that we are here. Let us stay in that place where we live our lives from the gratitude, from the awe of being alive together. Let us live our lives knowing what we know and as much as possible keeping our hearts centered on that, not trying to be greater than we can, not trying to pretend perfect knowledge because that only leads to our suffering, to the suffering of others. Help us hold that space between knowing and humility with love for ourselves and for each other. For these prayers that I've spoken out loud and for the prayers that each of these people carries on their own hearts, we say amen.